I don't feel any different about Messiah today than I did, you know, when I was 10 years old and sang it, uh, one of the movements um, at a wedding. Uh, it's, it's beautiful and um, it, it speaks to a social need and many people love it. But that doesn't mean that they need, need to love it without knowing its uh, relations with the society in which it was created. Sometimes I think of this in terms of adding a public health warning on works. So this work brought to you in part by the history of the profits of the slave trade. Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is a podcast where I talk with my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. So when I was studying music back in college, there were often these kind of like wild stories about music history and composers that would float around our practice rooms and rehearsal spaces. You know, like, did you hear about the composer who died of gangrene after he hit his foot with a giant staff while conducting? That's Jean-Baptiste Lully, and that's a true story. Did you hear about the composer who wrote weird madrigals and also, you know, murdered his wife and her lover when he found them in bed together? That's Carlo Gesualdo. True story. Did you hear about the composer of quaint folk settings who was really into bondage and S&M? That's Percy Granger. True story. You can Google it if you want to. I imagine if I was in college now, I might be hearing a similarly provocative story, one that has been unearthed only recently. Did you know that the composer of the Messiah invested in the slave trade? That's George Friedrich Handel, and it's a true story. Now, of course, this fact is not merely a bit of historical trivia. It's a serious claim that we have to reckon with as scholars and musicians and listeners, given Handel's importance in the creation of major oratorios and operas in the Baroque period, his centrality to the classical canon, and of course, the ubiquity of Messiah performances every Christmas season. And so I wanted to talk to the source of this discovery, David Hunter, who is Librarian Emeritus at the University of Texas at Austin. Back in 2013, while researching a book on Handel, Dr. Hunter stumbled across a document that showed the composer's name on a list of investors in the Royal African Company, one of Britain's two official slave trading companies, and a key participant in the brutality and horror that was the Middle Passage. Upon learning this information, our first reaction might be to cancel handle, whatever that might mean. But as Dr. Hunter points out, this is not just a question of the reprehensible actions of a lone individual, but it is also one of his participation in a broader system, one that forces us to confront the economic conditions that underpin the history of music and their links to histories of oppression, which is what we'll do now on Sound Expertise. So let's start with um, the kind of pretty significant discovery that you made in 2013 of Handel's relationship to the slave trade. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to find this out and kind of what the path was towards making that that realization? Yeah. Um, well, 
as you know, uh, <laughs> writing an academic book, uh, you try to cover all your bases and you're continually reviewing uh, databases and, and so on. And when the deadline approaches, you think, oh, I'll just do one last check. So right, right. Uh, librarians and, and uh, documentation companies and so on have put together wonderful databases of, of um, uh, data from the 18th century, uh, full text searching of newspapers, um, full text searching of or publications issued during the 18th century. And so I just put in a search uh, for Handel's name in, in this database called uh, 18th Century Collections Online. And um, lo and behold, up popped this uh, slim publication um, that is kept, as far as we know, only uh, survived only in a single copy uh, and then is held by the Graduate School of Business Library at, at Harvard. And um, it's called The Names of the Adventurers of the Royal African Company of England. And uh, in there, uh, it, it, it literally names 1,000 people who were at that moment investors in the Royal African Company, which was the official slave trading company um, in Britain, led, I might say, uh, in terms of the first name on the list, by the king, King George I. And, uh, I mean, I was completely astonished to find Handel's name in there. I mean, there's, I think if um, people had been paying attention a little earlier, uh, they might have already gone to looked for this kind of publication because uh, immediately prior to 1720, uh, Handel's patron was uh, James Bridges, the Duke of Chandos. Right. And um, he, although obviously this wasn't really paid attention to by um, uh handle biographers or or uh, other people who've written about uh, the connections between Handel and Shandos. Uh, Shandos was the leading investor in the Royal African Company and was trying to uh, make it uh, more profitable than it actually was at the time. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it's, it would have been a nice as assumption for somebody to have followed up on. But they didn't, so uh, it happened to, to me to find it. And um, you might think, oh, well, you've got that piece of evidence, that's all you need. But I would argue that, well, yes, that's okay, but perhaps uh, that list was uh, not entirely accurate. Maybe there are people on that list who should have been. Uh, maybe there were people on that list for reasons other than a, an actual investment. Uh, who knows? So um, to verify that I needed to go to the National Archives in London. And uh, once I was there, uh, I was able to call up the large ledgers that include um, the uh, purchase and sale of stock in the company. And there's about three or four 
um, transfers uh, on each page and you get these large volumes and they bring them out of the storage and you go and pick them up and you there's no index to them or anything so you just have to leaf through them looking for signatures uh, or looking for where the clerk uh, wrote the name of the buyer or the seller and so I did that um, that was in July of uh, 2013 and sure enough there were three of the four uh, buy and sell orders uh, were actually signed by handle. Wow. And so it came across um, three original handle signatures. Uh, buying which would have been and selling stock? Buying and selling stock in the Royal African Company okay. in 1720. Um, so I, that's, uh, that's the kind of evidence that is irrefutable. Right, <laughs> and um, uh, so I was able to pass that information along to the uh, editorial team of the um, Handle Complete Documents project, which is being published uh, by Cambridge University Press, and so they were able to include them in the in the first volume. So you can actually um, see them there, um, and. Um, and then I was able to include a, a few pages about it uh, in my biography, which right. uh, came out two years later. Um, so, so that's how it happened. Um, I was completely stunned, as anybody would be, uh, to, to, to find this out. I was able to go and talk to um, university, at, at four universities in the UK uh, that autumn, uh, when I had a study leave uh, in the UK. And so I was able to start to uh, spread the word, as it were. Right, right. And um, and then things have uh, moved on uh, slowly uh, since then in terms of broadening the uh, issue away from just uh, Handel and his personal engagement right, right. Um, to a, a much bigger question and one that really gets at the heart of uh, the study of Western music, and that is uh, what are the economic underpinnings uh, yes. of the artworks that we hold in such high regard. Mm. So, I mean, what are the relationships between these investments in the slave trade and Handel's music making? There's... Uh, a line that could be drawn uh, from the uh, earliest oratorio um, that he wrote, which was commissioned by uh, James Bridges, the Duke of Chandos, uh, Esther, uh, that Handel wrote for him and for performance by um, soloists and his uh, private band, um, the Duke of Chandos's private band. Um, a line can be drawn from that first oratorio in English through um, the 1730s up through to Messiah in, in 1742. Um, you could argue that had it not been for, you know, Shandus's patronage, uh, that Handel wouldn't not have uh, basically invented that form 
uh, with English words, setting English texts, texts in English, I should say. Um, uh, so the patronage, Shandos's patronage, which is a direct result of the money that he is making from the slave trade, right. helps create Handel's interest in the oratorio, basically yes. give birth to a genre that yes. 20 years later, after this investment does not exist for, for Handel, he right. writes Messiah. So right. it's not it's not a direct connection between the Messiah no. and the slave no. trade, but it's no. this kind of birth of this genre. You're, you're yes, the birth of the the birth of the genre. Yes, and um, you know what can you say? I mean, the, the, it, had it not been for COVID, we would have had another Christmas season with Messiahs being performed everywhere in the Anglo world or the English speaking world. A work that has been in continuous widespread performance well I was going to say since his death uh, I mean just uh, an amazingly iconic work of uh, as we used to say western civilization <laughs> such loaded terms right I mean it seems like you are arguing or could argue that this genre from Esther to the Messiah and the Oratorium of Broadway is, is basically tainted by its associations with the slave trade. Like, what do you, okay. what, how do you hope, <laughs> maybe that's the wrong word to use, but I mean, it's, how do you, how do you personally grapple with that as a Handel scholar, but also how do you think that the world of music should grapple with that? Well, I think the world of music should grapple with the issue of the broader issue of how the profits of slavery have, supported um, musical activity by exploring as much as can be known about it. Uh, but, uh, but as far as individual works are concerned, uh, I don't think that that should necessarily result in their, uh, you know, uh, prohibition. Sure. Or, um, but I, <laughs> I think they should come with a realistic understanding of how the works came into being. Right. And, and how they have um, been able to be transmitted to us uh, through manuscript scores or printed scores, a subject that we will probably come on to a bit later. And, and, and I would also say that one of the, one of the troubles that we have had in music history is considering music only in terms of aesthetic objects. Right. And that, that, that's a, a very blinkered way of, of looking at uh, how music is in the, as it were, real world. Um, so, uh, you know, music is an, an activity. So it, it involves a variety of people, not just the composer and not just, you know, groundbreaking works. It, it, it involves, and certainly not just performers, uh, but it involves, and, and I would say actually is really driven by the audience, but nobody in music history puts audiences first. Sure, sure. We, <laughs> we always put the creator, the creator first, whether it's, uh, you know, the, performer who is inspired by God or, or the uh, 
composer that's inspired by God. Um, uh, but all of the, um, to me, the important things are, are the conditions that bring a work into being right. and, and that enable it to have a continued existence. Um, now, some of that may be inherent to the work, but I, I would argue that it's actually a result of the audience having a continual need for that particular uh, musical uh, work, whether it's uh, a, a need of inspiration or solace or um, evoking some kind of emotion or individual or collective. Um, there, there are just so many ways in which different kinds of music uh, are important to different people. And you can't say that it's just as a result of, uh, you know, a wonderful aesthetic object right valued in aesthetic terms and you also i mean make the point that it's not just handle and it's not just the duke right it's that no you know, it's 30 32 of subscribers to the royal academy of music in the 1720s were also invested in the royal african company yes they were um and you know important people you know there's kind of a who's who of the uh, elite in in Britain at the time. It does seem extraordinary that, in a sense, that um, people have not bothered to look at the significance of the slave trade and the slave economy in the lives of um, important people. On the one hand, uh, you know, Britain had a, <laughs> an ideology of oh you know we abolished the slave trade in in uh, 1807 and everything was wonderful thereafter and we never had slavery in britain and 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 we you know the british british well at least when i was growing up that was the, that was a common thing oh you know the abolitionists like um uh william wilberforce were were saints. Uh, well, yes, uh, they were, they accomplished a great deal, but um, the whole history of the previous two centuries of, of, of British engagement in the slave trade and, and in fact dominating the slave trade, transatlantic slave trade during the 18th century, and the whole heritage and the consequences of that slave trade, particularly in uh, the United States of America, we we said, oh well, that's not our problem. Right. right. <laughs> so so it, it's really only you know it's British scholarship over the last uh, twenty years or so that has really um, brought uh, Britain's engagement with the slave trade uh, to the forefront of of people's attention. And naturally, of course, you've got a huge amount of blowback about that. Um, just in the same way that you saw the Trump administration object to the um, 1619 project that the New York Times did and, and bring out this completely ridiculous report two days ago, um, you know, you've had people in Britain pushing back against, uh, for example, the toppling of the statue of Edward Colson in, in, in Bristol and saying, oh, well, well, we shouldn't do that. Uh, you know, it's not our... 
uh, we shouldn't be uh, overturning history. Well, hello, <laughs> history is isn't fixed. It it, it is it's storytelling uh, attuned to a, a particular time, and and Britain had had this story about itself that it was uh, you know better than uh, better than others in doing away with the slave trade and. Uh, but it totally ignored the practical re realities of the preceding two centuries and indeed the subsequent periods um, up to when slavery itself was abolished in British colonies uh, in the 1830s and um, you know, compensation was paid to slave owners, not, not to slaves, but to slave wow. owners wow. For, the, for the property that they... Uh, lost, quote unquote, uh, by the freeing of the slaves. So, um, uh, the the amount of money that was spent to uh, recompense slave owners in the Caribbean, or many of whom, of course, actually lived in the UK, um, was uh, the largest single proportion of government expenditure um, in the second half of the eighteen uh, thirties. You mentioned manuscripts, and, and this kind of is another way in which we can look at the relationship between Handel's investments, the investments of wealthy British families, and the preservation of important pieces of music that we still have today. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the manuscript, one of the manuscripts of the Messiah, and the slave trade? Yes. Um, the, the first performing score of Messiah, the first performance was given in Dublin in uh, April of um, 1742. Um, th the manuscript that Handel used uh, on that occasion still survives uh, to this day. And in fact, if you're in Oxford, um, you can go and look at it in the, what they call the treasures room uh, in the Western Library, which is part of the Bodleian Library, um, right in the middle of Oxford. And, um, so there it is, uh, uh, as I've called it, a secular relic, um, a touchstone that links present-day people and performances to that um, first performance on, on the 13th of April, 1742. And um, what happened was that um, that particular manuscript of Handel's uh, came to be... Uh, part of uh, the mu music trade and, and uh, came through uh, auction houses and was um, eventually end up, ended up in the uh, Otley family. And um, the Otleys had, um, or w one branch of them had uh, uh, plantations in the Caribbean. And um, what I was just talking about, the uh, slave owners being recompensed uh, by the British government in the in the 1830s, uh, the Otley family uh, received uh, some considerable uh, amounts of money um, for their slaves um, in um, St. Vincent and Tobago and uh, in St. Christopher's. Um, so one of them, um, one of those uh, individuals in the Otley family, um, he uh, purchased um, 
this manuscript and um, uh, it remained in his family uh, until the um, uh, founding of uh, St. Michael's College Tenbury in, in Worcestershire. Uh, and then uh, the manuscript was given to that uh, institution. And then when that closed, uh, that's when it came to the, to the Bodleian Library. Um, so the Otley family, uh, as I mentioned, had money based on uh, ownership of um, plantations in the Caribbean. And one of them, one of those family members uh, purchased that manuscript. So the prof, basically the profits from the slave trade facilitated the preservation of this particular Messiah score. Manuscript, yes. Yeah, manuscript. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's another, um, there's a much larger collection of uh, copies of Handel manuscripts, uh, of works that's now in the British Library that was also funded in part um, through the purchase the purchase of this collection was funded in part by money that was given by uh, a man who um, came from a slave and plantation owning um, family. Um, so there, there are two, th those are the two main uh, ways in which um, manuscripts of handle works uh, that I've identified so far, uh, um, the two ways in which the preservation of those manuscripts has been made possible by uh, money uh, through the profits from the slavery in these plantations in the Caribbean. So, I mean, one of the things, you know, to move a little bit away from Handel that that this work has opened up for you, which you mentioned, is is understanding more broadly the relationship between basically elite culture that is values music in Britain and elsewhere, and and their investments in the slave trade. Can you talk a little bit about the Beckford family as an example of this, which you've written about, um, which has ties to Mozart and Clementi, and is also, um, you know, invested in investing in both music for their children and their family, as well as investing deeply in the slave trade. Yes, well, the, the Beckwith family were one of the uh, possibly the wealthiest families um, in terms of the, uh, the amount of money that they received from their plantations in Jamaica. Um, and um, they, they were, they're just extraordinary. The uh, William Beckford, the senior, he purchased an estate in uh, uh, the west of England uh, called Font Hill, in, not too far from um, Salisbury in um, Wiltshire. And um, he built uh, uh, or had built there uh, a massive country house. Uh, kind of thing that you might imagine from <laughs> watching British uh, upmarket soap operas like uh, Downton Abbey. Uh, and um, he uh, had an organ installed there, which was uh, <laughs> quite ahead of its time in, in terms of um, being able to be performed uh, w without 
a person at the keyboard, in, in other words, as a, a mechanical instrument, uh, was apparently water-driven, um, and it was massive. And um, <laughs> uh, he was so rich that when the house burnt down uh, 18 months after the organ had been installed, he just had the house rebuilt and put in a second organ. Um, wow. <laughs> just like the first. Um, his son, who was William Thomas Beckford, uh, who's known as uh, an author and a sort of dilettante, and um, he was the author of Vartek, which was a sort of Orientalist Gothic novel, um, which is still read today by uh, people in English departments, I guess. <laughs> um, he he uh, supposedly um, had music lessons with the uh, very young Mozart when Mozart came to London. Well, <laughs> there's uh, it, it seems pretty unlikely that that took place, but it certainly is likely that the Mozarts, that's Leopold and the two children, um, uh, did visit with the Beckfords because they were very well connected and they're mentioned in um, Leopold's uh, diary of, of all of the people that he, he met with. So there's, there's that connection. Um, one of the other Beckfords, um, Peter Beckford, went on a grand tour of Italy, uh, as was very typical amongst the uh, elite uh, at that time. And uh, while he was in Rome, he came across uh, a young musician, uh, Muzio Clementi, and um, uh, was who was then uh, 14 years old. And he literally bought, uh, the Peter Beckford literally bought uh, Clementi from Clementi's father and took him home to England and, and and installed him in his country house uh, in, in Dorset, um, and and the word bought is not uh, my own characterization, but actually the used by Beckford himself in his very bizarre. <laughs> yes, um, so the the documents that were um, signed by uh, the Peter Beckford and and um, Clementi's father. Uh, have survived at least in um, photographic in photographic reproduction. Um, so, so we actually have the facts about that, and and there's a Clementi biography which mentions it fair in just in passing, um, but there's no detail given about the um, sources of um, Peter Beckford's. Um, uh, income, uh, which were these uh, plantations in uh, Jamaica. Um, you know, most people know Clementi today because of his um, uh, works for the piano, um, which were, which are still in the pedagogical uh, repertory, but they don't know that uh, it's only because that he was brought to England and, and were, thanks to money from uh, 
plantation profits. Uh, otherwise, he probably would have stayed in in Italy and become a church musician there, like uh, most of the others. And uh, who knows what have happened would, would have happened to him? But he, but he became a you know piano virtuosi and a composer and a, a musical entrepreneur with concert series and and um, important. Uh, production of instruments and, and publications. And um, it, I mean, uh, it, it, I think in many ways made a, has made a huge difference to uh, piano, not just piano pedagogy and the use of uh, uh, the legato style, but, but, but also to just music history uh, to core, as they say. Right. You know, when we're talking about, you know, profits, investments, the kind of ledgers where you see Handel's name or, or the Becker mm -hmm. family's investments, um, you know, it's, it's, it can be quite abstract in the sense that I could buy and sell stock today and feel pretty yes. abstracted from, yes. from what's, uh, what the companies that I'm investing in are actually doing on the ground. And so I'm wondering, like, how, knowing all of this, how do you think about the 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 actual brutality of the slave trade and its effects on enslaved people like like how do you conceptualize the people on the other end of this system of oppression who are who are undergoing this horrible set of circumstances yes well this gets to i think the the broader uh, point of any kind of um uh, examination of of the issues surrounding this um, and and that's why I'm couching my current work in terms of how the economic system that was slavery and plantations how that uh, modified the musical worlds of not only people in Britain or uh, immigrants to the North American continent and the Caribbean, but also the lives of Native Americans and the lives and, of course, the musical activities of Africans who were enslaved and brought over to the Caribbean and, and North America. And so, you know, I think it's it's pretty clear where you want to see scholars going to answer all these new questions that this research poses. Um, and we kind of touched on this earlier, but I just want to return to it of like, there are musicians and audience members who are finding out this information, either from this podcast or from stuff of, of yours or, or other scholars that they've read. And like, how do you hope that they respond to the knowledge of let's say Handel's investments or the Beckford family. Like, is it, I mean, is it not standing during the hallelujah chorus? Is it not, is it, how, how can, how can people who are not scholars find, or how, how do you imagine that they might grapple with these questions themselves? Um, well, I, I think this is part of the assessment or reassessment of uh, our our heritage, whether that is of the settlers or of the slaves or of the Native Americans. Oh, and I should also say that actually there were plenty of 
Native Americans who were enslaved. And in fact, there were more Native American enslavements during the 17th century than there were African enslavements. So, um, uh, you know, slavery is not just a, a, an issue for um, those of African heritage. The relationship between musical works and individuals is so personal that it is not surprising that many people feel upset when you bring, uh, let's just say, obvious truths to their attention. I imagine that the prohibition that was uh, put upon the works of Wagner in uh, Israel led to discomfort amongst many people for whom the operas or other works of that composer were actually very meaningful. And that, um, you know, regardless of his, you know, odious uh, opinions and um, friends, um, th the works themselves uh, conveyed a kind of um, some emotions that um, uh, people have found valuable. So I think, in a sense, it is possible to um, divorce the... Uh, and, and this is what the argument about art for art's sake is all about, is divorcing the uh, personality of the composer or the, the uh, performers or whatever it might be um, from the, as it is sometimes known, the work itself. I don't feel any different about Messiah today than I did, you know, when I was 10 years old and sang it, uh, one of the movements um, at a wedding. Uh, it's, it's beautiful and um, it, it speaks to a social need and many people love it, but that doesn't mean that they need, need to love it without knowing its uh, relations with the society in which it was created in the same way that we love the music of um, let's say Palestrina or Bird or uh, Dufay or whatever else, you know, the church or churches in many ways have been responsible for terrible acts, whether they, you know, be a sexual assault or, greed or uh, warmongering or whatever it might be. Sure. But, but that doesn't prevent us from listening to um, uh, those works. And just because um, Shostakovich served in a uh, communist country and wrote works under the communist regime doesn't mean that we're not going to listen to those works or admire them. Um, so uh, what <laughs> sometimes I think of this in terms of adding a public health warning on works. So this work brought to you in part by the history of the profits of the slave trade mm. and leading people to understand that musical works are just as much a part of the societies in which they are created as they 
are uh, in performance uh, today. Well, thank you so much. This was really wonderful interview, and, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk You're with me. You're welcome, Will. Many, many thanks to David Hunter, who is Librarian Emeritus at the University of Texas at Austin, for that wonderful conversation and provocative and enlightening conversation. If you're new to the podcast, you can check out our previous episodes on soundexpertise.org, as well as show notes and links to Dr. Hunter's work. As always, please subscribe and tell your friends to check out Sound Expertise. If you have questions or thoughts about today's episode, you can tweet at me at Seated Ovation. And if you like our music and production, and I hope that you do, please check out the work of our amazing producer, D. Edward Davis, on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Del Antonio for transcribing our episodes to make them more accessible. Next week, we'll be talking to the amazing musicologist Lori Strass about what it means to study very old manuscripts of very old music. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.